Greetings and salutations. Welcome back to Life and Books and Everything. I am uh, Kevin DeYoung, although my squadcast name is Practical Wires. And I'm with Colin Hansen, who's always good at inputting his real name. And then Justin Taylor, lead singer for The Who, though it's all capital letters, so you mean the the World Health Organization. (laughs) They could use a lead singer these days. Uh, Good to be with you all. And we are joined today with our special guest, Carl Truman. They have let you out of the Grove City Conservatory to... uh, entertain us and let us ply you with questions. Carl, thanks for being here with us. Oh, it's a pleasure, Kevin. Thanks for having me on. All right. We're going to jump right in. What we're doing is we are talking about Carl's new book, which is getting a lot of attention and uh, rightfully so. It's it, it, it's a brilliant book, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, Cultural Amnesia, Expressive Individualism, and the Road to Sexual Revolution. Rod Dreher wrote a very nice foreword and Crossway, big fan and sometime sponsor of this program, uh, has published the book, and it's a real achievement. I'm going to jump in, and I underlined a lot in this book, and this is from page 266, this paragraph, which I think is uh, not a bad launching off place to have you give something of a brief summary of your argument. I'll read it here. Once identity was understood to be sexual, then it was only a matter of time before sex became political. And in the hands of, and just for our listeners, we're, we're going to scoot by these names right now and not focus on them so much as the idea and the history that Carl is tracing, but I'll read them. And in the hands of William Reich and Herbert Marcuse, that is exactly what happened. Their genius lay in the way they took the Marxist category of oppression and refracted it through the Freudian notion of repression. In so doing, they psychologized the notion of oppression, turned sexual repression into something negative, made political liberation essentially dependent on sexual liberation, and thereby established the framework for today's psychosexual politics. That is uh, a dense paragraph, but it's... It's right, and it gives one window into your argument in the book. So try to unpack that and untangle that for us, thinking of somebody who's heard of the book, hasn't read it yet, and wants to understand this turn from identity to sex to politics. Yeah, that's a great question, Kevin, and uh, you're really touching on the spine of the narrative of the book as a whole. Uh, what I argue in the book is that the, the sexual revolution and the, the politics that surround the sexual revolution, of which LGBTQ stuff is the most obvious contemporary manifestation, uh, this form of politics really depends upon a, a fundamental change in the way human beings understand the self. What I mean by the self is the way human beings fundamentally understand what our purpose in life is, where, where our happiness is to be found, uh, what makes us tick, if you like. And I start the story back in the uh, mid-18th century, and I say one of the key moves made in the 18th century is that certain figures, most notably the uh, Genevan philosopher Jean-Jacques Rousseau and his uh, cultural successors in what we now call the Romantic Movement, I think of William Wordsworth, Samuel Taylor Coleridge, uh, figures like that, they psychologize the self. They're the, the guys who 
really press the idea that, that that which makes us truly us is that inner voice inside our heads, that the most authentic me is to be found really in my feelings. Uh, and, and that's like a lot of ideas that contains a certain amount of truth. Clearly, we can't separate ourselves from our feelings in any clean or neat way, but they really emphasize that. And what happens then in the the late 19th, early 20th century is that Freud, who was a, something of an admirer of the Romantics and, and of Rousseau, Freud gets hold of that idea. He's sort of probing that inner space that the Romantics have opened up and have prioritized in identity. And he says, you know, the key thing about that voice of nature really is its, its sexual desire, that at its root, it's, it's all about uh, a sexuality, that which we desire sexually. So the story sort of moved forward a bit at that point. We've had this inner space opened up by the romantics. We, we have people who think of themselves in terms of their inner lives, their inner feelings, et cetera, et cetera. And now Freud says, yeah, and the most fundamental thing about those inner feelings is sexual desire. What Freud is really doing there is saying that that who you are at the most basic level is your sexual desires. And when you think about how we we routinely use language today, we'll talk about people being straight or gay. Uh, we talk about sex and sexual desire as an identity. And, and it's really the, the romantics and Freud that have, have made that possible. Well, one of the implications of that, of course, is is if who I am is fundamentally sexual, is fundamentally determined by my sexual desires, then inevitably how society deals with, treats, acts relative to my sexual desires is how society is, is treating me as an individual. And so the, the stage is set for the politicization of sex, if you like. Sex doesn't become, isn't simply something that one does. Uh, and so we have sexual codes, if you like, that say you can do this, but you can't do that. We might think that those are addressing issues of behavior, but once you imagine the world in sort of Freudian terms, then those rules and regulations actually touch upon who we are as people. And what you have in the 20th century, you mentioned Reich and Marcuse, there are others. These are very sophisticated Marxist thinkers, though I think the idea is spread well beyond the bounds of, of Marxism. The idea that, okay, if, if human beings are to be truly free and to truly flourish, then we need to break down the sexual codes that prevent us from being truly ourselves. If I'm a gay man and my sexual desire is, is for other men, then for society to stop me acting on those desires or talking about those desires in public is actually for society to stop me being myself, to force me to be unauthentic. And so the, the sexual identity issue is, is inevitably at some point uh, going to become and has become a, a political struggle. I'm, I'm going to, I know Justin has a, a follow-up question. I'm going to interject here before I throw it to you, Justin, because what you said there, Carl, uh, is really important. And I'm thinking of uh, an, another place I underlined on the bottom of page 68 and 69, you talk about this need for recognition. So the issue is not one of simply decriminalizing behavior. That would certainly mean that homosexual acts were tolerated by society, but the acts are only part of the overall problem. The real issue is one of recognition, of recognizing the legitimacy of who the person thinks he actually is. This requires more 
than mere tolerance. It requires equality before the law and recognition by the law and in society. And that is really well put because I think even within our lifetimes, maybe 25 years ago, all of the buzz was about tolerance and we just need to tolerate these sorts of behaviors. And once that ship sailed, it became very clear that tolerance wasn't going to be enough. And there's actually pastoral implications here, as I've talked many times with parents who ask, how do I love my son or daughter who's now identifying as gay or lesbian? And one of the things that inevitably they often find is it's not enough to say, I still love you as my son or daughter. You know, I disagree with this identity. I disagree with you living out this. I don't think it's biblical or appropriate, but I still love you and I will do the best I can to to treat you as my son and daughter. Most often, that's not enough because it's not enough to say, I'm going to disagree strongly with this, but still love you. The very act of disagreeing with that is received as unloving and, in fact, as hateful. There was a book, I'm sure you read it uh, a few years ago, sort of a cheeky title, Making Gay Okay, but it was actually a, a, a good book, and it made the argument that in law and in schooling and in the academy, it's not enough to simply affirm that such behavior can be tolerated by some. It must have complete societal victory in order to be truly authenticating and affirming. Why, how did we get to that point where it seemed like a generation ago or even half a generation ago, tolerance was the name of the game and now that's clearly not enough? Yeah, that's an extremely good point. And I think you put your finger on what is often the most painful of the pastoral consequences of the the sexual revolution, certainly as experienced by Christian parents and uh, those in positions of of pastoral authority within the church. How we get there, it's a complicated story, but clearly what we're dealing with in this generation that we weren't dealing with in in my generation, and and you're younger than me, but probably your generation as well, was a situation where uh, sexual identity had yet come to grip what we might call, what Charles Taylor calls the social imaginary. It's a rather as typical with Taylor, he uses obscure terms to refer to things that are relatively simple when you, when you explain them. But we might say the way people just imagine the world is. Taylor's getting there at the idea that most people don't think about the, the world in self-consciously theoretical terms. We, we imagine the world is a certain way. We intuit it. And what's happened in the last uh, 15, 20 years is that the intuitions of the social imaginary have come to place Uh, sexual desire very, very firmly at the center of how we think of identity. Freud was doing it in the late 19th, early 20th century. Reich and Marcuse were doing it from the 30s through the 50s and on into the 60s. Uh, It takes time for the ideas of elite figures to to percolate down really through, through their appropriation by pop culture. But we're now seeing a generation rise where every message they get from every movie every sitcom, every soap opera, every pop song, sometimes every commercial they watch. I have to think we have 
Christians get very worried about internet pornography, we perhaps should be just as worried about commercials that our, ki- our kids see. Mm-hmm. Have this this idea pressed on them that your sexual desire is fundamental to your identity, and you know, it 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 comes to be very painful in the kind of pastoral situation that you're describing, though I think all Christians feel the pinch because that old argument that, well, we hate the sin but love the sinner, that's not plausible anymore. Because if what we think of as the sin is actually the identity of the person we're talking to, they cannot make that conceptual distinction. Uh, It's not like saying, well, I, I hate the fact that you're greedy, but I still love you as a person. That, that makes sense because nobody sees their greed as fundamental to their identity. But saying to somebody, I, I hate your sexual orientation, but I love you as a person, hmm. that's, that's a paradox. That's a contradiction. So, yeah, uh, how we got there, it, it's taken a long, slow development. But I think we can, we can certainly say at this point pretty much every – avenue of influence in the wider culture that shapes how people think is pointing in this direction at this point and that makes it a very very hard situation to address and a deeply tragic one when it comes to breaking the relationship between parents and children yeah you won't one yeah. cannot you cannot begin to quantify the pain that that sort of situation creates justin yeah, Carl, thanks for joining us and uh, thanks for writing the book. And we uh, join you in prayer that God would use it in uh, all sorts of different ways. Um, I guess I have a two-part question. One is a sort of personal professional and the second methodological. So on the, the former, how did you come to the point where you were interested in writing this? Obviously, you have a background as a Reformation historian and interested in uh, medieval Christendom and even patristics, like at, at what point did you become interested enough and feel like you were equipped to to write on this? And the second one is perhaps you could give just a little bit of a methodological overview of, of how does a historian trace out the history of ideas and causation? I imagine somebody walking into a library and, you know, there's a huge section on Freud and there's a huge section on Reeve and there's a huge section on enlightenment thinkers how do you put it all together to actually form a narrative and and trace out how an idea developed over time uh great great couple of questions that's the first one justin well i mean first of all just while we're mutually slapping each other's backs thanks to you for backing the project and crossway for for publishing it Uh, in retrospect it 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 looked a bit interesting to hire a guy who wasn't competent to write this book, <laughs> to write it for a publisher that had never published a book like this before. It's, you know, what could possibly go wrong kind of thing? Um, uh, how I came to write it, I, I think a number of factors. I, uh, I, I, I really felt that I, to the extent that I've made a contribution to Reformation and post-Reformation studies, by the time my second book on John Owen was published, I'm really beginning to think, you know, I've, I've probably made my contribution. I can continue doing the same contribution, but professionally, I've, I, I've said pretty much what I want to say at this point. And that was both very freeing but also left me thinking, well, you know, life is short. What else should I do? And I was thinking it would be nice to do something completely different. 
around about the same time, uh, David Mills, who was then working at First Things, uh, brought me on to write some things for the magazine and start writing regularly for, for the blog. And that was an interesting moment for me because it I started to address issues that I'd not really thought about before. My mind was very much focused on the internal struggles within Protestantism, Presbyterianism, Evangelicalism. Suddenly, I was in a different world addressing bigger issues that were facing the church as a whole rather than our particular branches of it. And I started to sort of think along the lines of this book at that point, started to read more widely. And I was also became aware that I have a very privileged position compared to a lot of academics in the sense that at that point I was teaching at Westminster Seminary. Now I teach at Grove City College in Pennsylvania. There aren't a lot of places in higher education where one can address some of these issues and get away, get away with it. There are certain party lines that have to be maintained. And I began to feel that my privileged position gave me something of responsibility to to address them. You know, if you can address these things, then maybe I should, because I can do this with the backing of my administration, certainly at Grove, uh, in a way that I couldn't if I was a professor at a, 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 a secular school of some kind. So that was all the stuff that went on in my mind. And then when you and Rod Dreher approached me, that was the I kind of sealed the deal on that front and uh, thought it would be an interesting thing to do. How to go about it? I Wow, it was, it was the most difficult book I've ever written, not because the uh, I hadn't got the ideas, but because this I, I had lunch with Gordon Gray and Professor of Philosophy at Princeton Theological Seminary, an old Aberdeen University colleague, while I was at Princeton for the year. I'm sort of outlining to him what I was doing. And he he made a comment to me. He said, he said, I have no idea how I'd begin to address that. He said, it's like an octopus. How on earth do you get hold of all these arms? And I, I think that the breakthrough for me was getting the structure right. Once I decided, okay, let's do some theoretical chapters at the start that will actually set up the framework and then trace out the chronology. Uh, And that the chronology and the narrative shaped by the psychologizing of the self, the sexualizing of psychology, the politicizing of sex gave me a framework. There's also my historian's instincts. I'm aware whenever I write history, whatever I write is limited and provisional. And that's very, li- that's very liberating because it means you can leave stuff out and say at the start, I'm leaving stuff out. I, I'm going to give you a narrative here, which could be expanded and deepened, but I'm going to sort of give you some kind of roadmap. And then uh, what was then the Center for Vision of Values, now the Institute for Faith and Freedom at Grove City College, graciously gave me a research assistant uh, in the summer on the the structure for me. I would send her stuff and say, okay, how do we fit this jigsaw together? How do I get hold of all of the arms of the octopus? And uh, and Kirsten, uh, if you're out there listening, incredibly grateful for the work you did on the book. The, mm. the it, Of all the books I've written, this was a huge team effort from conception to structure to writing and now to marketing i I, you know i i did i did the reading and the writing i did the pleasurable bit but i couldn't have done it without the crossway team and without the grove city team and without the madison fellowship at princeton uh, all helping me get this thing to completion let me follow up on that did you so you cover a lot of figures in history 
uh, and some that you know people with a decent Western Civ background, which is fewer and fewer in number. Those who have such a background, but you know, you're looking at Rousseau and Wordsworth, Shelley, Blake, Nietzsche, Marx, Darwin, and you go into other Marxists that we've mentioned already. Did you already know a lot about these people? Is this just the product of a fabulous English education? <laughs> uh, or did you did you really have to, you know, figure out, okay, I know a little bit about some of these guys, but I got to do a lot more to figure out what's going on here. Most of them I had some acquaintance with and some I had more acquainted with than others. I, I've read Marx and Nietzsche for many years. Uh, I started reading Nietzsche at school just for the fun of it. We're not uh, surprised. <laughs> I have the attention span of a squirrel, so mm -hmm. I just read. I've just always read widely, uh, 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 which was a great help on this. I was introduced to Marxist theory at college by my uh, history supervisor and, and maintained an interest in that, particularly as a way of thinking through postmodernism uh, later on. For this book, the, the areas where I really had to do some, some hard mugging up, if you like, uh, gender theory, it's written so abominably. I, you know, I have little time for people who can't write well. And Judith Butler is, you know, there's a crime against the English language in every sentence, as far as I'm concerned. Uh, I almost wish she'd been translated into Latin. I might have found her easier to read that way. Yeah. Uh, uh, so I had to do that. I had to do a fair bit on Freud, actually. I'd, I'd read some of Freud, but but getting familiar with Freud's life and significance and feminist theory. And there, Rosaria Butterfield was extremely helpful. I, I dropped her a note and said, "Okay, I, I need to, you know, I, I need to mug up on on lesbian feminism, but I don't want to Google that. You know, <laughs> yeah. Right. Can you can you send me a reading list?" And she introduced me to some of the most fascinating stuff, the Adri the Adrian Rich stuff. I, I remember emailing Rosaria and saying, "This is amazing. I'm reading this. I'm lapping. I don't agree with it, but wow, it is carry." She's a clear thinker and she's carrying me along. And Rosario made some comment to the effect of, yeah, that's why I was into it for 20 years, because it's so compelling. So the feminist stuff was, was uh, mm. important as well. And that was something I'd not really bothered with in the past. Who is your, who was your intended audience? You know, all of us, Colin's written books, Justin, I've written yeah. books. And, and I usually have in my mind, you know, I write books that are for church people in the pews, somebody going to your proverbial book nook, church book stall, and pick up something yeah. that it, it, an educated layman could say, hey, this is interesting. I imagine you have, maybe that's your target audience, but I think maybe something different. Who are you writing for? Who did you imagine in your mind is reading this book that you want to read? Right. I was thinking of the kind of people who read First Things, Touchstone Magazine, that kind of stuff. So what I wanted to do was uh, there was a kind of twofold approach in my mind. I wanted the main text to be uh, clear but challenging. I, w I wanted somebody with no background. My my son's fiance's mother's reading my book at the moment and apparently in enjoying it. I wanted the thoughtful uh, well-read, but not necessarily academic layperson to be able to read the text or pass to be able to read the main text. On the other hand, I, I wanted the footnotes to be of a decent scholarly standard because I wanted to anticipate those who would come after me and say, ah, yes, but Truman's ignorance of this, or ah, yes, but Nietzsche doesn't actually say that. Uh, 
when I do, I, uh, I'm going to be working on an abridgment of it. The abridgment will not have footnotes uh, and, and will be a much more straightforward. But I feel I can do that because I've done the spade work this time around. I'm, I'm sort of free now not to heavily footnote anything because when the inevitable pushback comes, I can say, well, I did do the work. Look at my my earlier book. So it was really that sort of twofold intelligent audience, but I didn't want some queer theory scholar coming after me and saying, you know, you've not done the work. Mm-hmm. Uh, when, if and when the queer theory scholar comes after me, I want them to say, Truman's written this because he's a bigot. That's it's- not an argument. That's, uh, that's just a, that's an ad hominem way of getting me dismissed. And I wanted to make sure that that's the only thing they've got. Publishers Weekly sort of did that, actually. Already, it was very, in some ways, very gratifying. Say, yeah, they they say it's meticulously argued, but it's bigoted. <laughs> Those two things don't quite hold together. Right. Uh, but it was very gratifying to know. Yeah, you you can't take down my argument. You have to take me down as a person. Because it does seem like it. I mean, it's not your typical Christian book. Um, it's not your typical Crossway book. That's not an insult. That's just. You say at the beginning and, and at the end, and I think this is really important, that it's neither a lament nor a polemic, meaning this isn't just going to be, look how bad it is, though people can read between the lines, you think a lot of this is bad, yeah. but you don't really you don't really land on that a lot. You could read through most of the book and, and sort of pick up, you, you think this is problematic, but it's not a lament and it's not a polemic, so it's not... You, you don't go out of your way to say why all of this is wrong. That's sort of underneath the surface. So it's not a, a typical Christian book that we might expect to say, here's what's out there and here's why it's problematic. I don't know if you said it or someone else said about the book. It, it's more describing this late modernity to the church to say, I want you to understand it. And I think you also want and are hoping that non-Christians will read it. Have you heard any response from, you mentioned Publishers Weekly, but from non-Christians who are reading it, or even just non-Orthodox evangelical or Orthodox Catholic sort of Christians who are reading it and having their, if not their consciences pricked, then at least their intellectual curiosities piqued? Certainly getting a lot of good feedback from the, the Christian audience broadly conceived. Uh, Father Lawrence Farley, whom I know is a, a, an Orthodox priest in Vancouver, wrote a very positive review last week. I did a podcast last Friday, which is it's actually a sort of secular podcast. I, I don't know if the, the, the woman who interviewed me has any personal faith herself, but was very, very positive about the book. In fact, we were going to do an hour and she said, can we go for two, which was exhausting on a Friday afternoon, but yeah. we did we did two hours uh, together. So I'm very gratified uh, by that. And of course, part of, in the back of my mind is, yeah, I teach at a liberal arts college and it's a Christian liberal arts college, but it's open enrollment. I have kids in my classes for whom these are these are their issues. I'll, I'll have kids who, who would identify as gay, uh, who who might identify as as transgender, and I wanted to write a book that I would not be embarrassed to have written when I bump into them in the corridor, so that I can say to them, you know, I I do disagree with you, and you may find it hard to believe that I hate the sin and love the sinner, but you know, look at my book. 
my book might help you to understand why you think the way you do and might be o- an opener of conversations in that front. So the tone was very specifically honed uh, to make it, as I say, not a polemic or a lament. There's a sense in which both are relatively pointless in some ways. I wanted it to be useful uh, and I wanted it to be the kind of tool that a pastor can use to address issues as they occur in his congregation without being vulnerable to the accusation of, well, you know, you're just Fred Phelps in a smart suit kind of thing. Yeah. Uh, Colin, Justin, I'm doing all the, the questions and I have many more, but jump on in. Well, before I take the podcast, Carl, completely off the rails with a question about William of Ockham, I thought I would start first by asking um, about the sources you, you you cite. Judith Butler, we shouldn't be reading, but are any of these other sources you read people that we should be reading directly? Would it benefit Christian leaders to be reading Nietzsche directly or Freud or... Um, what should we do? Yeah, I, I think to an extent, a lot of these authors can be read uh, with great profit by Christians. I, I'm just finishing up. Uh, it was very ambitious, but I decided to do an undergraduate reading course of Charles Taylor's Secular Age this semester and uh, threw the kids in at the deep end. And they've all pretty much swum to the other side when we got there. One of the things that Taylor does towards the end of that book is he indicates that in modernity, quite often, uh, there's a sort of threefold battle going on. You've got exclusive humanists, you've got the Nietzscheans, and you've got Christians. And depending what the issue is, two of those can gang up against the third one. In other words, there's kind of overlap in odd ways between between those three. And I would say Nietzsche is, you know, we, Christians can side with Nietzsche because he realizes that the world is is a dark place. There is no utopia. And Nietzsche's understanding of the darker side of human nature uh, stands, I think, in in very positive relation to the Christian understanding of fallen human nature. So certainly when, when we look at Nietzsche and he calls the bluff on the Enlightenment, I think he's doing something that a Christian can say amen to. Yes, if you get rid of God, if you kill him, then you, you leave yourself with all kind of problems about moral discourse, et cetera, et cetera. So Nietzsche would certainly be one that I would put on the pile. Freud, civilization is discontents, is it's such a brilliant 100, you know, it's a 100 page, it's almost a long essay, really. I think it's an excellent statement of two things. One, uh, the power of, of, of sexuality in, in, in human existence, but also raises that interesting question of, what happens when we start to lift sexual taboos? If sexual taboos are that which maintains civilization, what happens when we start to lift them? And that would bring me to my third character that I would say is definitely worth reading, though though not an easy read, Philip Reef. I think Reef's Triumph of the Therapeutic, It's again, it's not an easy read, uh, but Reef's Triumph of, the, Triumph of the Therapeutic is a remarkably prescient analysis of culture. He wrote it in 1966, and it's one of those books, when you read it, you're thinking, wow, he couldn't possibly have known how much of this was actually going to come true. Reef was not a believer himself, right? Prophetic is a word that's thrown around very cheaply. 
it seems to me, relative to, to books. But Reef's book is truly prophetic. If you want to understand the world we live in, then then get hold of Reef and, and read him. Secular Jewish thinker, as far as I know, a, a little bit like a sort of Roger Scruton figure that mm -hmm. you know, I, 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 I can't commit to belief in God myself, but I think he's extremely important for maintaining civilization. It, it's, a, it's hard for me as a Christian to to see why that's coherence, but, but I think that's very much where Reef was coming from. Carl, how do you think about resources like that? I mean, there, there's a certain mindset that says we read them to understand all of the bad things out there so that we're being fair to them. And there's another mindset that says even though they, they got things fundamentally wrong, they also offer some insights into uh, the nature of cultures, the world in which we live, human psychology. As a Reformed theologian yourself, can we learn positively from people who got the big things so fundamentally wrong? I think so. Again, go back to Nietzsche. Yeah, I, I teach a course on, uh, I call it Shadows of the Antichrist to make it sound exciting. Uh, it's actually, it, it's, it's not as exciting as it sounds. We look at Marx, Nietzsche, Kierkegaard, Cardinal Newman, and Hermann Bavinck. We read texts from those five. Uh, and we look at Nietzsche's gay science and trace you know, the, the arguments such as it is of the gay science up to the Madman passage and beyond. And I think, as I said, as I just said, Nietzsche, I think, really does expose the consequences and the price of, uh, of the rejection of God in a way that one could find in the prophets, if you look at the Old Testament, when you look at idolatry in the Old Testament. You know, do I want people to become Nietzscheans? No. But I do want them to understand the point that Nietzsche's making, and that is when you reject God, it's all down to you. You can make up any God you want at that point, which he thinks is a great thing. Uh, but I think it's uh, that is, a, is the way, if you like, to, to address somebody like Richard Dawkins, I would tell you, know, Nietzsche would say about Richard Dawkins, he's not a true atheist at all. He he wants to kill God, but then he wants to live off the capital that God has provided him with. Well, Richard Dawkins is unlikely to listen to uh, me saying that to him, but give him both barrels with Nietzsche, and he might have to take it seriously at that point. Colin, did you really want to ask about Occam's razor? I do. Well, not about Occam's razor, but um, maybe we'll transition into the a uh, uh, Protestant Catholic uh, portion of uh, of this discourse. So Rod Dreher does the foreword for the book. Uh, Rod's a convert from mainline Protestantism to Roman Catholicism and now to Orthodoxy. And um, Rod has picked up over the years on a number of the sort of Catholic anti-Protestant polemic uh, from the medieval era, era specifically, which has been, I think, thoroughly debunked and yet persists in Catholic polemics. Uh, the connection between nominalism, William of Ockham in the medieval period, in, through Luther and Calvin, and ultimately then through this whole stream that you pick up on with Rousseau. When you and I talked for the Gospel Bound podcast, we talked about the sort of tale of two Genevans uh, with uh, Rousseau and with Calvin. How do you respond then to a Catholic apologist who would argue that what you're covering in this book is to a certain extent the outworking of Protestantism. And it's and it's um and it's sort of ruination of the medieval synthesis 
and building off the problems then of that nominalism introduced. Yeah. And explain it real quickly, Carl, just for people who have no idea what, <laughs> is what the, the world answer. Is asking. I told you, I told you I was going to take this thing off. Yeah. I told you I was going to take this thing off the rails, but yeah, the, the basic, the, the gist of it is simply a Catholic might read this book and say, yep, see, this is what Luther and Calvin unleashed on the world. Yeah. Yeah. That's the simplest way to put it. I mean, this is a sort of thesis that's been argued at great length with great sophistication by, say, Brad Gregory at Notre Dame. Uh, another course I've taught, I've been teaching the historiography course for the history department this semester, and we actually read Brad Gregory's The Unintended Reformation together, which uh, the, the students did not like as much as Lyndall Roper's biography of Luther, which I found very gratifying. But um, yeah, the, the, I, I think uh, there's a certain truth to it. Uh, one of the things the Reformation ultimately does is it introduces choice in religion. A religion becomes a choice in a way that it wasn't in the Middle Ages, and that fundamentally changes how people think about the role of religion in the world. Having said that, I, I, I would make an argument that, well, first of all, you know, William of Ockham, and if you wanted to push it back a century uh, earlier, Dun Scotus, they're, they're actually Catholics. You know, they're not Protestants. Uh, and as I said in, in a review many years ago, Brad Gregory's book, I said, you know, it really depends on, on where you want to, to start. But one could say that Protestantism and the Reformation was a response to the fact that, Protest that Catholicism had already failed at that point. And Protestantism may ultimately not have been able to solve the problem, but it certainly didn't cause the problem. These are Catholic theologians who are causing the problem. Uh, I would say, uh, I, I would also add a strand that I would say, you know, I do agree. Uh, and uh, people contact me about my medieval lectures that I did at Westminster Seminary. And ironically, I've, like on a number of things, I've changed my opinion. So people are saying, how could you possibly believe Duns Scotus was a good thing? And I say, I don't. I was young and stupid and naive. And now I've changed yeah. my opinion. Uh, I do think that late medieval nominalism and voluntarism uh, without going into the details of what they mean, essentially what they do to the way people think about the world is get rid of, of the idea of essences, get rid of the idea that we have built into us a particular end or purpose. We become sort of stuff, if you like, not people who have a particular end and purpose. That's a fatal move, theologically. Uh, I do think that's a problem. But you know, to go back to my earlier career as a church historian, much of my, my, my study of John Owen was an attempt to demonstrate that Thomism, which I think has an emphasis upon essences and ends and teleology, was alive and well in Reformed Orthodoxy in the 17th century. And I believe, it's not my area, but I believe the same could be said for Lutheran Orthodoxy as well. So I would want to counter Catholic criticisms by saying, you know, we're all part of the problem. And in some sense, we're all part of the solution as well. It just depends which particular bits uh, you pick on. If medieval Catholicism had not done such a hopeless job, the Reformation would not have been necessary. Did the Reformation uh, uh, further exacerbate certain problems? Possibly. Certainly, it led to the sort of breaking up of the church. But Maybe the printing press was going to do that because we know that as literacy rates increase, people start to think more independently and become more politically revolutionary. So 
the story that you know your book is a story of how protestantism screwed it all up no i would say it's a story of how western culture got screwed up of which catholicism and protestantism are both partly at fault and i do think that one of the dangers uh, for people who like to do intellectual history, which is all of us, is we can neglect the role that technology plays. And you just mentioned it, and you said before, you know, you, you talk about cars. I mean, what has had more of an impact on our world yeah. and community? The cars or the pill has been widely discussed. But you talk about the printing press or the the ease by which people, even in early modern period, could begin to travel or that waterways were more navigable. Once you have countries interacting more with other countries, you're unleashing a whole set of new ideas and circumstances. And how do we have trade with one another if they're enemies and heretics and we can't even trade goods with them? How do we maintain? To, I mean, this is what Grotius is trying to unpack. So there's a lots of other factors at play. I, I want to piggyback on Colin's question. Because uh, some, I've heard some people say, Carl, and hopefully you find this gratifying. I, I, I think you could make this case that your book here is is maybe the finest analysis, cultural analysis by a Protestant in the last fifty years. So take that as a, a nice compliment. One of the things I noticed in the book is that you don't rely a lot on Protestant thinkers. I mean, you have Charles Taylor, you have yeah. Reef, you've mentioned, you have Alistair McIntyre. We yeah. haven't talked about him yet. Um, so is that indicative of Protestants not being very good at this sort of thing? Is that indicative of your interests? Or would we have seen more Protestants if you were trying to give a constructive alternative? And then you would go into Bavink or wh whoever from the Reformed tradition. Yeah. Why is it that... Protestants haven't done this well, or are we just missing the folks who have? That's a good question. I, I, I have wondered about this. You know, this is the best Protestant book, you know, on this for 50 years. If that's like saying, you know, this is like the giantest uh, skyscraper where Justin lives in Iowa or something like that. <laughs> it's a, nice, it's a sort of English nice relative yeah, term. Right. Um, I, I, I think... There are good Protestants out there who've thought about culture, obviously. I mean, Os Guinness would be one name that comes to mind. I think James Davison Hunter is a Protestant. Uh, I think that's the case. Uh, David, David Wells. Wells. David Wells, of course. With church culture. Yeah. Uh, and the interesting thing about David was when I was – I actually thought of his work as, as an example of how – the sexual revolution has caught us all by surprise in that, you know, David's books were very influential on me in the 90s, really formative on the way I thought. But from memory, he hardly touches on the sexual revolution. It's it's not really something that's that's going to have an impact on the church. And that's not a criticism of David's scholarship at all. That's simply saying that this whole thing has, has absolutely blindsided blindsided us. So in terms of Protestants writing on the specific issues I've looked at, no, there, there aren't many out there. And James Davison Hunter, of course, is, is more sociological in many ways uh, than, than, than I would be. Um, so there is the, there has been a lack. I think Catholicism, for all of, you know, I'm a Protestant, for all of its problems, I would say, does have a vibrant history of social teaching and a vibrant history of reflection upon 
the importance of the body, the physical body, for what it means to be human. And of course, those are those are things that are central to my narrative in many ways. And therefore, I found myself drawing on on Catholic material quite a lot. And one of the pleas I make at the end is it's it's time for Protestants to start thinking about some things that that Catholicism has has wrestled with for many years and we're now playing catch up on. Um, yeah, we need we need more Michael Hanby's. Michael Hanby does such wonderful work on the role of technology in the understanding of uh, of human personhood. I, I was of all of the jacket commendations, the one when when Michael Hanby's came in, I remember turning to my wife and saying, "I, I think the book must make sense because Michael Hanby liked it." It was kind of wow. Uh, we need more Protestants, I think, addressing these kind of issues, and I hope my book. Uh, provides some grounds and material for doing that. It's very gratifying to see Protestants picking it up and enjoying it. Well, I, I hope that that is a, a trigger for more Protestants doing more of this work. Uh, yeah, I think that's true. And uh, I'll get to a question here at the end of this, but it just got me thinking, you know, when you're in, like when I was in high school and I did cross country in track. And we were always really bad at our school in cross country and track because all of the, most of the really good athletes wanted to play football in the fall and they wanted to play baseball in the spring. And I think a similar thing can happen with, let's just take reformed evangelicalism. Um, we, what's, what's prized in our tradition is certainly preaching, um, reformed dogmatics. We produce a lot of people who can do that well. Uh, broader evangelical tribes, certainly, Biblical scholarship and commentaries, uh, good churchmen and pastors. So all of these things, you know, evangelists, we have people to save. All of these things are really good. And, you know, I, I'm going to put up our, with all the problems we have with preaching, I'm going to put up our preachers with Catholic priests giving homilies any day. Mm. But one of the things that I think we've not been encouraged as much is the sort of, and this gets to my question, Carl, the sort of work that relies on, for lack of a better term, natural law or just that natural law thinking. So some of the books that, you know, Robbie George and his crew of people have done on, you know, Ryan Anderson on marriage and some of those things, you know, from a, a, a Protestant perspective, you say, well, we could use some more, Greek exegesis. And, and that's true, but that's a different kind of book yeah, in the yeah. sort of work that they're doing from that natural law tradition, I think is something that Protestants could rightly reclaim as part of our own tradition. I mean, you, you find Turretin, I mean, the great Turretin, talking about the importance of philosophy and natural law as a handmaiden to theology. So I was interested that at the end of the book, you raise that as one of the things along with the theology of the body. Why do you think that sort of thinking is important, even if, as you yeah. admit, it's probably not going to convince your opponent? I, th I think it's important because it's going to help us talk to our young people about these issues. Again, my experience of, of, of the, the students at Grove, they're great students. Many of them, you know, I'm going to sound... I was going to say horribly evangelical at this point, but I don't mean that at all. You know what I mean? I'm going to sound uncharacteristic of myself at this point. They love Jesus. 
They love Jesus. They love the Bible. They want to live their lives for Jesus. We're but, for all of those things on this podcast. I, and I'm for all of yeah. them too, uh-huh. but, but, you know, behind a stern English demeanor, you know, yes, we have right. this, this breaking character, a breaking deep, character, serious Carl. joy. Yes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but these kids, they, they're, they've got all this, but of course they have the huge pressures of the world pressing in on them. They've all got gay friends now. Many of them have, you know, transgender people that they they know and are friendly with. And there's a sense in which just telling them, well, it's wrong because God says so in the Bible. They know that intuitively that, yes, that's enough, but it's helpful for them to have a deeper understanding of why, you know, does God say that just because he had a bad day? You know, he's just decided he wants to be mean to my friends. Or are there reasons deeply embedded within the structure of creation itself that would that would lead us to, to, to make sense for God to say that? And that's where I think natural law comes in. And, you know, I, Robbie George's book, Ryan Anderson's book, is a great example of that. I, I remain – I've never met – there may be somebody out there – I've never met – a proponent of gay marriage who read that book and was persuaded, you know, uh, and yet I think it's an unanswerable book, but I don't, I've never met anyone who, who was persuaded to change their mind by that book. What I have met are Christians who will say it, it really did confirm me that, yeah, the church has got the Bible right. Uh, and that's not to say natural reason as an authority alongside or above scripture, but it was pedagogically helpful. And that's where I think that it's going to be useful to for for, for Protestants to to reflect on natural. I love the work my friend David Van Drunen is doing. Um uh, and that his work is now getting more widely read and more widely accepted. I think Crossway published his uh, Living in Living Between Two Kingdoms or Living in the Two Kingdoms. That's a book I recommend all the time to students who ask me about about ethics and the relation of the heavenly and the earthly. Uh, And I think that stuff has a hugely positive function for uh, Christians who have faith, but they're seeking understanding. Um, So hopefully more more Protestants will be doing this kind of work. My friend uh, Adeline Allen at Trinity Law School in California is doing great work on uh, surrogacy and the ethics of uh, artificial insemination. These are things that Protestants need to have an opinion on. As a pastor, I was always glad that I was never never faced with a couple in my – you know, my office who desire something good, desire to have a child, but don't know whether it's ethical to have in vitro fertilization. I wouldn't have known where to begin to think about that issue. It's great that we've got Protestants beginning to wrestle with these issues that I I think an in vitro fertilization requires some engagement with natural law because it's it's so far removed from the immediate teaching and vision of the Bible that we need some help in understanding how general biblical principles play out in terms of the nature, the natural, uh, and the advice that we would give to people in that situation. So let me follow up with a practical question, then we'll get Colin and Justin, we'll, and then we'll, we'll try to wrap things up and not keep you for the second hour, though we're tempted to do so. So let me set the scenario. This is a, a true scenario from my life, but it could be multiplied in, I'm sure, many of our listeners' lives. I was, um, back when I lived in Michigan, our kids went to the public school, and you can thank me or hate me for that. But uh, Mine did too. 
but yes. not in Michigan, but in yeah, not Michigan. Yeah. And there, we love our Christian school here. But I served on our district's sex education committee. It, it was, I think, still is a law in Michigan that you needed to have a clergy member serve on your sex education committee. And as you can imagine, it was the people who signed up for that were always liberal clergy. And somehow somebody within the administration, I think he was a Mormon, maybe got tipped off and and said, Kevin, I um, would you want to do this? Uh, and I foolishly said yes. And you're at ground zero talking about curriculum. And most of the time, you're just trying to be politically savvy enough. Okay, we'll cross our sort of church-based group from coming in to talk about abstinence if you cross off Planned Parenthood from coming in and talking about abortion. You're just trying to mitigate your yeah. losses. But I remember very well talking about this new curriculum, and somebody on the committee just says, with all the matter-of-factness, as if they had said, you know that it snows in Michigan, they said, well, everyone knows that sex and gender are completely different things. Everyone knows that you can be assigned one sex at birth and decide to be a different gender. And this was said because we were looking at a curriculum that wasn't that old. I mean, it was 15 years old, but it was old enough that it still didn't have that in it. And people wanted this new understanding. So in that moment, uh, I thought, is there anything I can say? If I come to this context and say, here, I got a Bible verse, I could do that. That Let's say, well, that's what we expect from the pastor. Um, I don't have, a, you know, a two-hour seminar to try to walk through Rousseau. Hmm. Is there anything in that moment, if you've got 30 seconds to make somebody even wonder about possibly wanting to think about hearing more, to think differently? Do you have any advice? Because Christians are increasingly yeah. find themselves in those situations on the spot. What do I say, not to convince someone, but maybe... As, uh, uh, as, as, oh, now he's uh, losing my, my track of mine, who I want to quote here, but says you put a pebble in somebody's shoe and then later they walk off. Yeah. yeah. Uh, that's Kokel. why I, Greg Kokel. Thank you. Sorry, Greg. Uh, any advice? That's a tough one. Uh, I, I would say yeah, the, the great thing about that particular issue is, of course, you can cite people who are not Christians. Who, who, who clearly think that sex and gender are tightly connected. Jermaine Greer would be mm. one. Um, there is a, 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 an organization, I can give you the link, actually, if, if you wanted a link to it from this podcast. Uh, uh, it's called Hands Across the Aisle, which is uh, run by a friend, a friend of mine and uh, a radical feminist who was fired for asserting the, the necessary connection between sex and gender from the, the radical feminist newspaper that she worked for mm. that provides material that, that addresses that, clearly not in a specifically Christian way. The, my friend, the lady is a Roman Catholic, but uh, the, the feminist lady is, has no interest in religion whatsoever. So there is material out there. But I would say the, the best way to do that you know, is perhaps just to, to to pull out of the bag a source like that, that that throws a spanner in the works. And it doesn't just sound like, well, I'm quoting a Bible verse. Actually, I'm quoting Jermaine Greer here. She's a radical feminist. Or I'm quoting uh, Hands Across the Aisle. And they would tell you that, you know, from a secular perspective, this can have some very bad consequences. Yeah, no, that's good. And And even if that allows you to say, might we be able to 
have time at a future meeting where we could each hear even five or 10 minutes and talk about this, even to make the step to acknowledge there is a debate about that in many contexts is the small win we may need. Yeah. And there are, there are plenty of feminists out there that you could bring in to make that point for you, where it would be clearly not a, uh, a power I didn't play have J.K. Rowling back then, a few years ago. <laughs> yeah, she's, I mean, well, the great thing about her is she's wealthy enough to do it and get away with it. Teachers yeah. in the public school system, they they don't have the ability to, to to throw their weight around like she does. But but that's not to belittle what she's done. All power to her elbow on this one. Colin and then Justin, you got a final question? I'm going to pass. I think I took up about four questions on the William Vacom one. So, Justin, your call. Justin. Carl, I got an email from a friend today that said, why is Carl Truman against lament? And uh, lament is biblical. Uh, why doesn't he want to lament more? Would you say that it is uh, it's something good but not sufficient? Hey, I, I wrote. Is it just your British? The thing I've written that I get more letters about than anything else was a little piece called What Can Miserable Christians Sing? Thing, that's yeah. full of lament, Matt. Um, and I'm from a Scottish psalm singing background. We lament all the time. Uh, no, I, I, I think my I, I'm not against lament. But I was, I, I'm against the kind of lamentation that a lot of Christians engage in that, that ends up being kind of therapeutic. It's a fine line sometimes between lamenting the situation and saying, I thank you, Lord, that I'm not like other men. And I didn't want this book to be uh, the world's going to hell in a handcart, but I thank you, Lord, that, you know, I get it. And that's why I'm lamenting about it so thoroughly. Clearly, I... I I, I think there is a definite place for lament in the Christian life. Uh, I would say that that our attitude towards the sexual revolution these days, we shouldn't be surprised, but we should be shocked. We shouldn't be saddened by it. We should be saddened by the toll it's taking on, on humanity, by the damage it's doing to, to young lives. So clearly there's a place for lament. I just didn't think that my book was the place to do that. I I wanted the book to fulfill a different purpose. There are plenty of lamenters out there. I did not want to be one of them. All right, Carl, in in an effort to truly show my expressive individualism, I'm going to give you two thoughts and you can choose which one of the two you would like to comment on for our final question. They're two, they're not major themes in the book, but they, they're they very interesting. So I'll let you decide what you want to talk about. One is at the end, uh, and you reference a book came out last year, Costly Obedience, What We Can Learn from, cel- from the Celibate Gay Community. And you say, okay, let's just set aside if that's the right language to use. I don't think it is. But you rightly said, okay, that's not what I want to talk about. But you said, only in a world in which selves are typically recognized or validated by their sexuality and their sexual fulfillment can celibacy be considered costly. And you go on, you're not saying that there's there's no price of discipleship, but you're you're saying, hey, there's a cost for all of us. And if you're married, you're called to chastity. So uh, that is a new way of thinking, I think, for many Christians who would instinctively read a title like that. So that's one option. Here's a second option if you want to talk about. Maybe you saw in the latest issue of First Things, Mary Eberstadt has... Uh, an article about the furies of the fatherless. And she's kind of written about this before in some of her books that we tend to think that our theology shapes our view of the family. And one of her arguments is 
it's actually our our family that is shaping our theology or often our family pathologies that are shaping our theology or our philosophy and you and she talks about some current leaders in sort of the anti-racist movement and also the alt-right and sort of their dysfunctional backgrounds and how what they're about now is maybe filling that void but you could even go through enlightenment thinkers and notice how many of these are men who never raised children mm-hmm. john locke yeah. adam smith wasn't married you point out in the book rousseau is i mean he's one who had a bunch of kids and he was horrible he shipped yeah. them all off to orphanages you could go down of course william godwin on marriage yeah. is, is awful so that's a theme that i think is worth exploring which of those two do you want to talk about for our final wow. few minutes I, I mean either of the work i think i'll go for the second because it's uh, it's tracking with with something else I'm thinking about at the moment. Carter Sneed, the, the, the Notre Dame ethicist, has a fantastic new book out on what it means to be human. And the point he makes there is that, that expressive individualism, which I deal with in my book, but from a different angle, is fundamentally wrong because it teaches us that we are independent beings, that the individual is first, and all of our social ties and connections are kind of contractual and therefore at some level, adversarial. Uh, and he sees that as playing out particularly in, in the ethics of life uh, in terms of um, abortion, in terms of uh, fertility treatments, and in terms of end-of-term care. And I, and I think what you're pointing to there is, is, is something very, very significant, that the notion of expressive individualism uh, grips our imaginations in some ways because so often uh, all the founders of, of of the notion didn't have those relations of dependency that a lot of us have. Uh, and Rousseau is is the is the superb example of that. You know, sending your kids to an orphanage, five of them, that's a death sentence. You know, sentencing five kids to infanticide. That really speaks deeply of, uh, of a perverted way of thinking about humanity. So I haven't, I've only, first things is, is sitting on my, my desk. I've been doing so many podcasts, I've not had a chance to read right. this, this edition yet. But I think it sounds like Mary Eberstadt is really onto something there, that the idea of dependency, it isn't just something you, you read about in books and then develop in your life. It's something you experience it's something you experience, and for those abandoned by their parents, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, those who have who feel an adversarial, uh, feel that that most important of human bonds, parents and children, is actually adversarial, that will have a profound effect on how they think about themselves and how they relate to the world. That's great. I mean, not a great note to end on, but a great thought, and I'd love for maybe – Maybe Colin, Justin, and I can pick that up or we'll have you on again, Carl. Thank you. I know you're doing a lot of these podcasts. Always a pleasure to talk. Thank you for taking the time to do this. Again, the book, Rise, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. It's 407 pages, but you uh, you won't regret reading it. And even if you have to skip some of the, the Freudian kinkiness, you can get to the good stuff. 
Uh, it's really well done. So congratulations, Crossway and Carl on the book. Thank you for being with us. For our regular listeners, this is, we think, the end of season two. And Lord willing, we'll be back in the new year. Maybe we'll drop in during the holidays, but no plans as of yet. I think the world will go on just fine without our podcast for a few weeks. But thank you for listening. And Colin and Justin, thank you again. A pleasure to be with you until we all meet again. Glorify God, enjoy him forever, and read a good book.